0: Good morning. morning. Hey, as we're settling in, you can turn to the book of 1 John chapter 5. We're going to finish that up this morning. Uh, But just as we kind of make this adjustment from break time into the Word, I think it's pretty cool the time we live in. Uh, Definitely a technology age. It's really amazing to me that our services can be viewed from anywhere in the world. When our team was in Africa, in Kenya, in Uganda, they were able to log on and watch and worship with us live, which is amazing. And you can go online from anywhere and you can pull up a, a past service and view it. Technology is pretty incredible. It's both wonderful and it's, it's great, but there's headaches associated with it too, as you know. But All of the talk recently has been about artificial intelligence, AI. Have you been hearing about that? It's all over the news. Not a day goes by that there aren't at least a couple headlines on artificial intelligence. And the whole idea was artificial intelligence. John, that didn't come up for me. Uh, it's, It's a computer program that can perform tasks which closely or ordinarily would require human intelligence to accomplish. But it's now programs can do it. And it's not a new concept. It's been around for decades, but until recently most systems just operated off of you know an established set of rules. But the revolution in AI comes from what's called generative AI. And generative AI uses machine learning algorithms and it can generate new and original content, whether that's text or images or even music. AI can create music and it's hard to tell whether that was created by an individual or by a program. But what's really been been calling attention to AI in the last year is that this technology has now been made available to the general public through chatbots, and a a very popular one that you've probably been hearing a lot about is ChatGPT. ChatGPT, a chatbot emulates a human conversation. It's almost like you're texting with a friend, and so, it's hard to distinguish from that content that it produces from something that maybe an individual wrote. And so they found that it can create a draft for a a lawsuit. ChatGPT can write a term paper that looks like a student did it. It can pass standardized tests ChatGPT even took a hand-drawn sketch of a website and created a whole website from it. It's amazing what it's able to do. And the headlines this week say that artificial intelligence is gonna radically impact two-thirds of all jobs in the United States, and many of them will be completely replaced by artificial intelligence. And so, it's so transformative that technology leaders are calling on Congress to put a six-month hold on AI while they develop rules to make sure that it's used in a safe manner. So, I wanted to find out what it's all about. So I created a log on. My son's been using it for a little while. Well I created a log on this week and went in there and I gave it a little test drive. And so I asked it this question. I said, well was Jesus an historical being? Now this is going to be a little hard to read, but this is exactly what it said. There is strong historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical figure who lived in the first century AD. The existence of Jesus is widely accepted by scholars, including those who do not necessarily believe in his divine nature or message. There are several historical sources sources that mention Jesus, including the New Testament Gospels, the works of the Jewish historian Josephus, and the Roman historian Tacitus. These sources describe Jesus as a Jewish teacher and a healer who lived in Palestine during the Roman occupation, who was executed by persecution under the authority of Pontius Pilate. And it says, while there may be some debate and varying interpretations among scholars regarding the specifics of Jesus' life and teachings, there is little doubt among historians that Jesus was a real person who lived in the first century A.D. I thought, that's pretty cool. It popped this up kind of like I have on the screen, just line by line in about 10 seconds. So I thought, well, let's inquire a little further. So I asked it. What evidence would suggest that Jesus is the son of God? Now, what would chat GPT say? Well, it says the evidence that suggests that Jesus is the son of God is primarily found in the Christian scriptures, specifically the New Testament. It says, according to the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be the son of God as well as the Messiah or savior of humanity. He performed many miracles, including healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead, which were seen as evidences of his divine power and authority. He also taught about the nature of God and the meaning of life, which were seen as revealing divine truth. It said Jesus' followers, including his disciples in the early Christian community, believed that he was the Son of God and the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, they were willing to endure persecution and even death for their faith in Jesus, which was seen as a further evidence of his divine nature. While the evidence for Jesus as the Son of God is primarily based on faith and belief, there are also historical and philosophical arguments that support this view. However, the nature of faith and belief is ultimately a matter of personal interpretation and conviction. Now, for an artificial intelligence generated, you know, uh, text on the reality of who Jesus was. I thought that was pretty good. I was blown away by that. I thought I was going to go in there and find that they had programmed it to say, yeah, yeah, you can't really believe any of that. But it was pretty compelling. It was, it was very realistic. Now, I'm not saying that it's infallible. I think artificial intelligence can be used for great good though and probably great evil as well. I don't know, maybe the plan is for everybody to gain such confidence in this and then maybe a couple years down the road they change the algorithm and insert some kind of deception in there. And some people have suggested AI is the antichrist. I don't know, so I went a little further. I thought, well, I wanna test its creative ability. I'm gonna give it something that it couldn't just pull out of a book somewhere. So I asked it, can you suggest a logo for Riverside Community Church? And it says, as an AI model, I can suggest a logo design concept for Riverside Community Church. Here's a possible suggestion. The logo could feature an image of a river flowing through a green and lush landscape with a bridge or a pathway crossing over the river. The river could symbolize the community's journey of faith, growth, and renewal, while the bridge or pathway represents the church's role in guiding and supporting its members on this journey. The green landscape could represent the beauty and abundance of God's creation and the church's commitment to stewardship and environmental responsibility. The front of the logo could be clean and modern with the name Riverside Community Church written in bold letters, possibly in blue and green to match the colors of the river and the landscape. This is just a suggested concept, and the actual logo design should be based on the specific values, mission, and vision of Riverside Community Church, as well as the preferences and feedback of the church leadership and members. That's pretty amazing. Who needs graphic designers anymore? It just did it in like 10 seconds. It was pretty, it's kind of close to the new logo that we came out with a year ago. So having seen what this thing is capable of doing, I ask it one more question. Can you give me a sermon outline for 1 John 5, <laughs> 18 through 21? Honest. 10 seconds, you're not going to be able to read this, but I was blown away. It says, yes, I can provide a possible sermon outline for 1 John 5, 18 through 21. It gave it a title. It said, living in the light of God's love. And it said, introduction, begin with the brief overview of 1 John and its themes of love, obedience, and truth. Introduce the passage in 1 John 5, 18 through 21, which emphasizes the importance of remaining in God's love and guarding against the influences of the world. Point number one, believers are protected by God's love. Verse 18, discuss the assurance that believers have in God's love and protection. Highlight the contrast between the security of those who are born of God and the vulnerability of those who are under the power of the evil one. Point two, the world is under the power of the evil one. Verse 19, discuss the reality of the world's brokenness and corruption. Highlight the role of the evil one in deceiving and enslaving people to sin and darkness. Emphasize the importance of recognizing the power of the world and resisting its influence. Point number three, believers have a knowledge of the truth. Discuss the importance of knowledge and truth in the Christian life. Highlight the role of Jesus Christ as a source of true knowledge in the revelation of God's love. Emphasize a contrast between the knowledge of God that believers have and the false beliefs of the world. Closing exhortations from verse 21. Summarize the main points of the passage and their relevance to the Christian life. Provide practical application, encouragement for believers to remain in God's love. Resist the influences of the world and pursue the truth of God's love. Close with a prayer of gratitude for God's love and a call to live in the light of his truth. All right. That's like scary good. <laughs> so that's what I did. That's, that's my message. I just let AI generate it. I was blown away by what this did in just 10 seconds. Yet, as impressive as AI and chat GPT are, if you ask it a very pointed question about whether God exists... It will say that it can't make a definitive statement on God or the certainty of salvation. It leaves it as a matter of personal interpretation and conviction. So that was kind of interesting. It's probably programmed to do that, and and that's fine. But the thing is, God doesn't leave any indecision. God goes so much further. He says you can know with absolute certainty about the existence of God and of salvation. In fact, this, this letter that we've been studying over 30 times, John writes about knowing. And our key verse has been 1 John 5, 13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It doesn't say so that you can wish or hope or presume, but that you may know. And this word, it connotes certainty. And so other verses, we know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we belong to the truth. We know that he lives in us. We know that we are children of God. This has been sprinkled throughout 1 John. God doesn't want us to have any doubt whatsoever about these things. He makes it very clear. And so that's why the title of our series has been Absolute Certainty, and we're finishing 1 John today, but we'll be in 2 John and 3 John in the weeks ahead. They're much, much shorter, but we have just four verses left in 1 John, and it's like in this letter at the end, he just starts throwing stuff like kind of, and this, we know this, and we know this, and we know this, and so... There's a lot packed into these last four verses, and so I've titled it, Absolute Certainty of All These Things. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I hope we see three points in there. First of all, God's divine protection in verse 18. His distinct purpose in verses 19 and 20. And then his devout, our devout priorities in verse 21. Now, I didn't get this outline off of ChatGPT this week, but next week, I just might have to. Imagine how this can save me time. Well, let's read through this short passage first. First, uh, John 5, beginning in verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And with that, he closes the letter. Now, I want to look first at this idea of divine protection. And we see it primarily in verse 18. You may remember that kind of the theme for Easter two Sundays ago was that of complete transformation. And we talked about how when we surrender our life to Christ, he does something really incredible. He transforms us spiritually and it's such a radical transformation that he describes it as being like born all over again, remade. And he takes away our old heart of stone and gives us a new heart of flesh, new desires and new affections. He just completely changes us. And so then we, we come though to this verse 18 and it says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, we also talked a lot about sin the last couple weeks. We saw that sin means missing the mark, right? And the imagery is that of an archer shooting an arrow at a target. And we saw that God's standard, his target is really, really small. His target is moral perfection. And that's not just to be, you know, tough on people. That's because God is holy. And so anything short of moral perfection is sin, and it separates us from a God who is perfectly holy. And so that's sin. And then we come to this verse 18, and it says, Anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Uh-oh. I mean, it seems like we have a problem, right? Because I continue to sin. Anybody else? Is it just me? We all do, don't we? So does that mean that we are not born of God? Does that mean that we somehow miss this spiritual transformation that's supposed to happen? It appears to. I mean, when you read this, it sounds like it's saying anyone born of God does not ever sin. But thankfully, that's not the case. The Greek word for sin in verse 18 implies a continual, habitual practice of of sin. And so you could say, in other words, that anyone born of God He does not live a lifestyle of sin. He does not continually, habitually pursue and practice sin. All of us sin and miss the mark, both before we're saved and after. But we saw early on in chapter 1 of 1 John, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a Christian, though, doesn't have the same relationship with sin that we did before we were saved. A Christian no longer loves sin. He no longer brags about it. It's no longer a pursuit. Rather, it's something that we try to avoid. Remember the words of Martin Luther? I think he said it really, really well. Sin clings to a Christian, a non-Christian clings to sin. And so the difference, does does a Christian continue to sin? Yes. He will stumble and fall into sin. And when he does, it grieves him. And he confesses it, trying his best not to repeat it. So yes, he'll continue to sin, but it's not a pursuit. It's not a continuous habitual practice. And so this verse 18 continues, and it says, The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. The one who was born of God is speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a a New King James or or a King James Version, there's kind of an unfortunate translation there. It says that he keeps himself safe. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying we keep ourselves safe. It's saying that if we are born of God, he, the one who is born of God, Jesus, keeps us safe. Jesus keeps the child of God safe. If you think about it, love and protection go hand in hand. Just think about a mother who loves her child and the instinctive protection that's there. Or a mother bear with her cubs. There's this fierce protection of those children. Now, imagine if God went to such great lengths lengths to save us, but then he didn't later protect us. One of, one of the greatest modern-day stories of rescue is that of the Tom Luang cave in northern Thailand. Maybe you heard about this story. It was the summer of 2018, and there were 12 soccer players from age 11 to 16 and their 25-year-old assistant coach. And after practice, they went to explore in this cave like they had done for years. Very popular thing to do. But it was monsoon season and the rains came and while they were in the cave, it flooded the entrance to the cave. Well, they turned up missing that night. And so by evening they found all of their bikes sitting outside the flooded cave. And they could only hope that they weren't washed away but that they had retreated somewhere into the back of this cave network. And so this began a massive, massive rescue effort. And this is no ordinary cave. This cave runs for six miles inside the mountains there in Northern Thailand. So they brought in specialty divers, the Thai Navy SEALs were to be the best of the best. And over and over they tried to navigate these narrow flooded passageways underwater with near zero visibility and they failed. They couldn't hardly get a few hundred yards beyond the entrance of the cave. One of them panicked and died of asphyxiation, a Navy SEAL. That's how challenging the conditions were. Well, several more days and and many more failed attempts, and a pair of civilian British cave divers arrived. And they had this unique experience of diving in caves. It takes a very special mindset because panic is all around. And... They were used to diving in these restricted caves and they even created some of their own homemade equipment to do it. I mean, I don't think bravery even begins to describe this feat. And so progressively, they made it further and further into the flooded cave in what seemed like a suicide mission. Everybody said, this is a suicide mission. On day nine, they were more than two and a half miles into the mountain. When they surfaced into this dark chamber and there, huddled together on a rock in the pure darkness, were the boys. And they were all alive, every one of them, and the coach. They'd been sitting in the cold, damp, dark for almost two weeks. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that would be like? You can't see a thing. They were encouraging one another, trying to keep each other alive. And then imagine the thrill. When out of the dark, they start seeing lights underwater. And these lights are getting brighter and closer. And then up out of the water emerges two divers. Oh my gosh, the feeling of relief. Wow. So they found the boys. But that was the easy part. Now they had to figure out how to get them out. This is what the cave system looked like. They were two and a half miles into the mountain. Despite having pumped over a billion liters of water out of the cave. There was still a kilometer of this path that was underwater. And this, this illustration doesn't do it justice. It makes it look like it's this big, wide cavern. There were places where they could barely wiggle through with their tanks on. It was so cramped getting back in there. And so... They began, a team, a team of thousands of people began trying to devise a plan to get them out. Among other things, they drilled more than a hundred holes down trying to tap into the cave and get oxygen down to them, but with no success. By six more days, day 15, the oxygen level inside this chamber had dropped below the level that was needed to support normal human function. And they realized their time and their options were running out. The only option they would have would would be to try to bring these boys out underwater. This is challenging even for the world's best divers. One of them died. And these boys, they didn't even know how to swim. And yet they had to get them out. So the plan would involve something they'd never tried before. They would anesthetize the boys and render them completely unconscious. And then they would give them other medication to keep them from just choking and drowning in their own saliva. And then they would put a pressure mask over their face and strap them to like a a gurney. And they would, the diver said, this was the hardest thing I ever had to do. It went against every fiber in my body. They took the first boy and they pushed him underwater. And they began a three-hour journey out of the cave. They didn't know if there'd be any life left in this boy when they got to the other side. It was such a long journey that halfway through, they had to pause in a chamber and re-inject him with the anesthesia to keep him unconscious. They begun to kind of shake and quiver as they were getting to that point. It was, it was, there was no certainty that this was even going to work. So they're taking him out, strapped to a stretcher, underwater and unconscious. Well, over time, over days, they brought out one boy after another, after another. They got all 12 kids and the coach out of that cave. It it was hailed as a modern miracle. There were over 10,000 people that contributed to the effort, including more than 100 divers, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers and representatives from 100 government agencies. What an effort. Probably one of the greatest rescue missions of our time. If you've never seen it, there is an incredible documentary by National Geographic called The Rescue, it is gripping. There's been some other movies made about it, but this is real footage, and it is, it is utterly gripping. Well, here's my whole point about this. Earlier this year, Dungfet thronthup this was the 12-year-old captain of the soccer team. He was the sixth boy to be rescued from the cave. He found himself, they found him unconscious in his dorm room, at his soccer college. And two days later, he died at the age of 17. The cause of death is believed to be an accidental head injury. Now, how tragic to survive something as harrowing as this cave rescue only to die a few years later of an accidental head injury. Maybe something that a helmet could have prevented. But yet this happened. This was just in February. But do you realize? God went to even greater lengths than that to rescue you and me from the consequences of sin. Far greater lengths. He came into our sin-soaked darkness as a sinless man and literally took upon himself our sin so that he could give us his righteousness in exchange. He died, he rose again in victory over sin and death. Now having done all that, how would he not want to also protect those he's rescued? How would he allow sin to creep back in and snatch away the life that he worked so hard to save? Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life And they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's divine protection. God protects forever those he's rescued. Think about all the names and the metaphors in the Bible for God's protection. He's our shield, our fortress, our hiding place, our keeper, refuge, rock, shepherd, shade, shelter, defender we see the divine protection of God throughout the Bible and that's what we see in this verse 18 and here in our text it's speaking specifically of spiritual protection for those who are born of God and it refers first of all to eternal security believers are saved forever from the penalty of sin, because Christ took that penalty for us. And to assure us of this, he does something really special. He puts his Holy Spirit in us as a guarantee, a guarantee of what's to come. Listen to this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. It says... Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. How cool is that? This is our eternal protection for all who believe. God also offers protection for his children from the power of sin in this present life. He gives us this new nature and the power to say no to sin. Galatians 5.16 said, Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I, I told you about a young pastor who had just gotten out of seminary. He was married and they were just scraping to get by. And one day his wife came home with the $250 dress. And he said, oh, honey, how could you do this? I mean, you know we can't afford this. And she said, well, I was outside the store and it was in the window and I just went in to turn it on and it was like the voice of the evil one saying to me, you should buy it. You look great in that dress. And the young pastor said to her, well, why didn't you do like I do and say, get behind me, Satan? And she said, I did. But he said, it looks great from back here too. <laughs> We face temptation, but seriously, we have a choice. God gives us this new nature, but we still have our old flesh. And we have this choice to live by our new nature, the spirit, or by our old nature, the flesh. Pastor Dan spoke so effectively about this last week, didn't he? He talked about playing in the darkness, both spiritually and physically. We play in the darkness and there's dangers there. It can hurt us. It can even cost us our life. When we choose to step outside of God's will, we also step outside of some of his protection for us. When we play games in the darkness, we're stepping outside of God's protection. He won't always protect us from some of the consequences of our sin. Rather, Hebrews twelve six says, the Lord disciplines those he loves, just like a father disciplines his son. He lets us endure some of those consequences. He says he disciplines us for a good that we may share in his holiness. In other words, there's a good purpose in God not completely protecting us from all the consequences of our sin. Yes, we're protected eternally, but when we make those choices to play in the darkness, we often suffer consequences. Lying and gossiping, it damages relationships with the people around us. Things like substance abuse, sexual immorality, greed, they can have all kinds of negative consequences on our physical health and even our mental health. And so God's protection in this life doesn't mean that we can do anything we want and not suffer consequences. It wouldn't be loving if God did that. But he does give us the power to say no to sin. And he protects forever those that he's rescued. So this is, this is God's divine Protection. I'm going to speed it up here, and we're going to look next at his distinct purpose in verse 19, first of all. It says, we know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And the emphasis here, again, is on knowing. We know that we're children of God. Throughout this book, we've seen how we can know without, with absolute certainty. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but we can know it by his spirit within us. That's the starting point. We can know it by the ability that his spirit gives us the desire and ability to keep his commands. And we can know it by the love that that produces for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So these are some of the evidences and it can only come from a heart that's been changed. But a power of God that's been transformed. Now by contrast in the second half of verse 19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, again, by world, it's not referring to the planet, the physical world. It's not even referring to all the people in the world. It's referring to a system, a worldly system. And we described it this way. The world is an organized system headed by Satan designed to keep God out. The world opposes everything that God stands for and stands for everything that God opposes. We see it all around us, don't we? Just look in the news. We see it in culture, in media, in schools, in universities. We see it in governments. We see it in these religions of the world. They're opposed to everything God stands for, and they stand for everything that God opposes. And it's not a coincidence. It's an organized system. It has a purpose, and it has a power behind it. Jesus said this. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. He said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And we're given this warning in James 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? See, they're diametrically opposed. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the world is a system that is opposed to God. I think think a lot of unbelievers have a lot of unbelieving friends. They're well-intentioned, but they're terribly misguided and they're terribly misinformed. They think they're doing what's good and right and they're passionate about it. But they're misguided and uninformed. They're, as it says in verse 19, they're under the control of the evil one. And they don't even know it. Now look at verse 20. It says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. God doesn't want us to live in ignorance. He doesn't. He's come, and one of his primary purposes for coming into our world was to give us understanding. Understanding of who God is, first of all. Understanding of the mess that we're in apart from him. Understanding of how that separates us from him understanding of how we can be reconciled to God, understanding of what it means then to live for him, the purpose for which he created us. He came to give us that understanding. And one metaphor that you see throughout the Bible for understanding is that of light. And I think it's a it's a great metaphor. Jesus This was said of Jesus, the promise, the prophecy of his coming. It said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never live in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light. It's a great metaphor because it illuminates and gives us understanding so that we can see, so that we can understand Imagine being stuck in that dark cave with no light whatsoever. You need light to see where you are, to see what's around you. You need light to guide you out of the cave. Notice verse 20 says that God has come and he's given us understanding. He came and he brought the understanding. We couldn't have figured it out by ourselves so many religions, man-made religions are man's attempt to figure it out. If you just do this and you just give this money and you just say these things and you just live like this, you'll somehow reach nirvana. You'll reach a godlike state. You'll be accepted by God. That's religion and it's a bunch of hooey. We can't do it on our own. It requires God coming in and giving us that light, that understanding. He came into our dark world and he revealed himself because he wants us to see, first of all, who he is. He he wants us to see the greatness of his love. He wants us to see the beauty of his character. He wants us to see what the Bible calls his glory. It's like the radiance of his character and his being. He came into our world so that we could see that. There's another beautiful verse 2 Corinthians 4 6 it says for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ isn't that cool he shines his light into our hearts so we can see the beauty of who he is but it's more than just standing at a distance and seeing him like oh man that's God It's drawing us near so that we can share in his glory. Look again at verse 20. It says, we know also, that's speaking of an intellectual knowledge, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That second know is different in the Greek. It's speaking of a relational knowledge. It's speaking of this close, personal, even intimate knowledge knowledge of God and this is the whole purpose of its of his revelation it's saying so that we might know him who is true that we might know him personally and then verse 20 continues it says and we are in him who is true even in his son Jesus Christ God doesn't want us to just know about him he wants us to know him personally So he revealed himself and he revealed the way to have a relationship with the only God who is true. And he wants us to share in his glory. That's an amazing thing. Ephesians one says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and is incomparably great power for us who believe. He wants us to know that. He wants us to share. He wants to bless us with that. This is his distinct purpose for us, to see the glory of God and then to get to share in that glory, both now and in eternity. So let's look quickly at the devout priorities then. It's just a single verse, verse twenty. It says, sure, I got it right, there it is. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Does it? Dear children, keep yourself from idols. It seems like a really strange way to end this whole amazing letter, isn't it? It seems kind of anticlimactic, but it's actually really appropriate. First it says, dear children. John uses this nine times in this letter, dear children, dear children. It's like one of his favorite Terms and it, it, it speaks of, first of all, a relationship, but also this real, like, deep affection. Dear children. And he really captured the sense of it in chapter 3, verse 1, when it said, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Children of God. So there's this relational aspect to dear children. But beyond that, it also speaks of someone who's humble and someone who's teachable like a little child. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like, what? Little children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, receiving God's forgiveness requires humility and trust. And those things come natural to a little child. You have to teach a child that there's not no God, that there is no God, for him to believe that. It's natural for a child to believe and to trust. And Jesus says, you have to become like a little child. So dear children, and then he says, keep yourself from idols. When I think of worshiping idols, the first thing I think of is like a statue. And there's some of that. You see some people venerate Mary, you know, they might, I don't know, but idol worship in the sense of statues isn't very common, at least in, in this country. Go to a place like Thailand and they're everywhere. Big Buddhas on mountains made of gold. The reclining Buddha, the golden Buddha, the emerald Buddha, they're everywhere. These statues and they go in and they pay homage to these idols, but an idol's more than that. An idol is actually anything that takes priority over God in our lives. And so, an idol can be a career. It can be a hobby. A habit. It can be a sport. It can, it can even, big idol in our lives is often ourselves. Putting ourselves before God. It can even be family. If we allow that to come before God. So our our, our enemy's favorite way to draw us away from God is to get us focused on things that have absolutely no eternal value. It breaks my heart when I drive to church on Sunday mornings, it has not started yet, but in a few weeks it will, and the soccer fields on Bolkham are filled with kids and families. I just have to try to tell myself, I bet they went to church last night. Like maybe they're Seventh-day Adventists and they worship on Saturdays, I don't know but they're out there and there's nothing wrong with soccer in and of itself. Sports and hobbies, they're not bad things unless they take the place of the best thing. And then they do become idols. If they take the place of our relationship with the living God. So why end on this note? Keep yourself from idols. It's because God's purpose for us is to have a relationship with the living God and to have a a loving relationship with the other people around us. That's his purpose. And so idols are anything that will get in the way and choke that out. It prohibits, idols prohibit everything that has been talked about in this letter in terms of loving God, loving people. And so we have to have devout priorities always place God first. So that's how he ends the book. I need to wrap this up. But I want to go back to the kids for a minute in Tom Luong Cave. Those boys were absolutely helpless in that cave, weren't they? There's no way they were going to make their way out on their own. It wasn't going to happen. They were going to die. It was just a matter of time. In fact, you could say they were as good as dead. They were on their last breath, literally, when help came. And when that rescuer arrived, what did the boys have to do to make it out? It wasn't hold their breath. It wasn't swim really hard. It wasn't figure out where we're going. What did they have to do? Surrender and trust themselves completely to the one who came to rescue them. Can you think of any greater illustration of surrender than Okay, put the needle in my arm and I'm just going to lay back and I'm going to let you take me through this and deliver me out of this. I mean, it is the ultimate illustration of surrender and trust. That's what they had to do. It was the only way they could be saved. Well, the same is true for you and me. We have to surrender completely and trust the one who came to rescue us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know it well, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There is no work involved in salvation. God shines his light in our lives so we can see the mess that we're in. And then he shows us the beauty of a God who had come down into our mess the punishment so that we could be set free. He rescues us. He does all the work. We simply have to surrender and trust in him. Colossians 1:13 and 14. This is such a beautiful verse. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. How cool is that? Think about that cape. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that awesome? Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Why well, I began talking about generative AI, chat GPT. Well, it might be a talking in there. To me. Well, I did have one more question for it. I wanted to really press its limits. I said, Can you suggest a a prayer for receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Now, listen to what it came up with. This is spot on. It says, certainly, here's a suggested prayer for receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Dear God, I come to you with an open heart and a desire to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus is your son that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead on the third day. I acknowledge that I am a sinner and that I need your forgiveness. I confess my sins and I ask for your mercy and grace. I repent of my old ways and turn to you with a new heart and a new mind. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I invite him into my life to be my guide, my friend, and my source of strength. I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I may walk in your ways and serve you with all my heart. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for sending Jesus to save me. I pray this in his name. Amen. I don't think I could have said it any better. And then it gave this great caveat. It said, Remember, this prayer is simply a suggestion and that it's the sincerity of your heart that truly matters. God loves you and desires to have a personal relationship with you. That's Pastor Chat. (laughs) I'm blown away by how good this was. Now again, I'm not saying it can't turn. I'm not saying it's infallible, but wow. That really captured it, didn't it? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're lost. We're in a mess. If left to ourselves, we're in the dark. There's no way out. There's, and it's lethal, God. And yet you don't want us to be lost. You don't want us to be misguided. You don't want us to perish, and so you did something so marvelous. You revealed yourself to us. You showed us what divine love looks like. And you came into our dark world to rescue us from the power of sin and darkness to bring us into your glorious light so that we might know you personally and share in your beauty, in the inheritance of the saints, of the blessing that you have wanted for us from before time began, and you offer it freely. No work of our own. Mm-hmm. Simply surrender and trust. That's the be- most beautiful story of rescue that we could ever imagine. And every word of it is true. We can be absolutely certain of that. So God, I pray that every one of us would surrender our lives to you. That we'd realize there's no way out of this alive, spiritually, other than through you. God, that you would be our highest priority. That we live out the purpose for which you created us to know you, to enjoy fellowship with you, to be with you, to to share in your glory. So God... Thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us, God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.